Good morning, everybody. Thank you for your input about that. Psalms 100, 101, and 102 are bringing us closer to the end of, our, our, of this particular series on the Psalms. And um, I may do them out of order because 102 is a little bit longer, and I definitely want to get through all of it today. So we'll do that one second, if you don't mind. Um, Psalm 100 uh, has a couple of special places in the history of, of, of the Christian church. Um, first of all, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations is something that we've seen in the, in the liturgy um, now and in the past. And how many of you besides maybe TJ recognize this? What's it from? Yeah, Old Hundredth is uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, so, uh, and, uh, so you see that I had to blow that up quite a bit to get it on the screen so it's legible. And you see how small that is? Do you understand now why we don't just uh, scan the hymns and put them onto the screen? Takes a little bit more than that. Mrs. O, somebody's here for you. I'm not sure if that was diamonds or gum. I don't. Uh, so even if I were to blow this up, it would be too fuzzy and illegible to really read properly, um, which is why it's hard to put music on the screen. Musical notes, I mean. It's not impossible, but it's difficult um, to do correctly. Psalm 100 is an orphan. Uh, but meaning that there's no author given, but it is uh, that hymn, all people that on earth do dwell, or praise God from whom all blessings flow. And if I remember rightly, if you remind me, I do have, uh, we'll, we'll sing it at the end of the class today. Fair enough? All right. I like to end funerals with that particular piece out of the cemetery, um, if I possibly can. So a psalm for giving thanks. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. We have an emotion here with, with worship. Uh, the emotion, of course, is joy. Joy, joy, joy. Next Sunday, I'm preaching on Isaiah 35. And the chapter and the sermon will end with that emotion that that particular chapter gives to us of our time in heaven also. Um, lots and lots of uses of the word joy there. Um, by the way, the, the, just the phrase for giving thanks is unique among the headings of the Psalms. That's never spoken outside of this Psalm in the Psalms. But it does imply a special thank offering. Thank offerings were not required of Israel. They were the ones that were just brought to the tabernacle and you could give anything you wanted to. The only thing that was required is if you bring any kind of an offering, Make sure that you also bring along salt. So it could be anything. Uh, it could be flowers or money or whatever, but bring along salt, God said. Whatever you do, don't come empty-handed. So you're going to bring something, bring something, and also make sure that it's got salt. So salt was that important um, to the people. You had to make sure that you had salt. Why was salt so important? Partly as a preservative, yeah, yeah. And then also, as Job says, who can eat eggs without salt? It's gross. So, 
Job could not. Job could not. At least not the whites of an egg. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. It is he, or rather we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And I wanted to point out that in this verse we have what's called antithetic, or rather, um, I'm sorry, not antithetic. I have that wrong on your sheet. It's, it, this is synthetic parallelism, where the second line, and in this case the fourth line, continue the thought of the line before. So know that the Lord is God, and then just a continuing thought. He made us. We are his, and then a continuing thought. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. So that's what synthetic is. It just carries along the, the idea to the very next uh, natural conclusion or to something else that's said about it. Um, so in, in both of these, though, no, to know is to acknowledge him and to experience his rule. Um, so know that the Lord is God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, praise his name. Um, uh, once again, we have uh, uh, a very close, this, in this case, it's almost synonymous. It is synonymous. And it's almost a little psalm within the psalm. Here we have a picture of worship at the tabernacle. So when you came to the tent, the tabernacle, the first thing you would see is just a wall of curtains. You'd walk up to that wall of curtains, maybe seven feet tall. You can't really see over them. But the middle ones are, the flaps are up. Those are the gates. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. There would be a Levite there welcoming you, um, making sure you're there for the right reason, I suppose, as well. Then you'd walk in and you'd be in the courtyard then. There ahead of you, um, oh, uh, uh, quite a few yards away, would be the big um, partly wood, partly bronze altar. Um, and there would be probably a dirt uh, ramp going up that altar. Why a ramp? Well, God had commanded that so that um, a priest wouldn't have to uh, be on steps and that he might not accidentally expose himself wearing his robe. So have a, let, let it be a ramp and let him walk up and let him serve with dignity. Um, and uh, then you're in the courts with praise and then you can give thanks Praise his name and offer your offering, whatever it might happen to be. Whatever you can afford is an offering. Thank offering was often given for like the birth of a baby um, or a good harvest or a successful journey or recovery from an illness or something like that or just general thanks. You might give a thank offering. Uh, you and I might think of it at our birthday. You know, I'm going to go give an offering, if, depending on how far away the tabernacle is that year or whatever it is. The tabernacle, for most of its time in Israel, was in a place called Shiloh, uh, but not always there. A little bit later, it was at Gibeon, and then it got kind of taken apart. Part of it was at Gibeon, part of it was at Shiloh. But earlier, we don't know exactly where it is in the days of, for example, the judges. Where was the tabernacle? It, I think it kind of moved around for a while until it finally landed there at the beginning of 1 Samuel, it said Shiloh. It's going to be there for a while. Um, but uh, when I uh, wrote devotions on Leviticus uh, a few years ago, I did little family stories because I thought in Leviticus, what could be the, more, the most difficult book to slog through than Leviticus? And so every Friday, my devotions turned to a little fictional family 
um, based on an actual historical Israelite family and how they obeyed the laws we were talking about that week. So things like if you see a lizard, you have to jump over it. You can't touch it. And what happens if the men bring home a giraffe? You know, how do you, where do you sacrifice it? How do you, where do you slit its throat? And things like that and, and uh, all those different sacrifices and what happens if, uh, if, uh, if uh, what are they called? The, the insurance lizard. Um, the gecko, thank you. What happens if that falls in your clay pot? And things that the law actually addresses. All of these things are talked about. Or um, what happens if mama has a baby? And then what, what sacrifices do we bring? So all those things we did. Um, and, uh, and then uh, a thank offering, though, would the family would bring for this and that, and the, like at, after a baby and things like that. And what do we bring? And, and how, is it, how is it done? All right. Five, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Again, a similar pattern. Um, his faithfulness continues through all generations. Here we come to the doctrine of God's eternal nature and his immutable nature. What does immutable mean? You, you can't mute it? Can't change it, yeah. Completely unchanging nature. Um, our, uh, our dogmatics textbooks talk about God um, in his essence as a perfectly simple being, an essence. That means God is not, as we are, made up of many different things. You know, it takes a lot of different uh, organs and things to make up a human being. Um, but, but God is not made up of organs and so forth. As a, as a spirit, he is a perfectly simple being in the sense that he is. You can't remove a part of God and let him still be God. You can take out my appendix and I would still be me, correct? I could lose an arm in a horrible accident and I would still be me, correct? Yeah, and so forth. But with God, you can't remove any of his attributes. If I were to remove love from God, would he still be God? No, because God is love. You know, and so, so he's immutable. He's unchanging as he is. Whole, complete, perfect, and eternal. Um, uh, and he has, his attributes uh, also doctrinally have kind of three classes. Um, and uh, first of all, you have the spiritual set of, 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 of his essence. He is, I have this on your sheet in kind of a, a, a shorter format, but in the middle of the first page. So he is spiritual, and that really maybe describes this first class of, of uh, attributes. His essence is spiritual, incorporeal. What does that one mean? Not made of flesh. Yeah, not made of flesh. Very, very good. He is invisible unless he chooses not to be, right? He is completely simple. I've already explained what that means. Free of mixture, division, um, his attributes. He doesn't have any attributes that are unessential. All of his attributes are essential. You have to have them to have it be God. Um, he's not a composite. Uh, and, and, and by that I mean that if there, there was never an earlier version of God from, from whom he was born. God is God, period. That's really what simple means. He is also eternal, therefore immutable. We already described what immutable means. He is immortal and infinite. 
Those two things don't exactly mean the same thing. Immortal means really he, simply that he can't die. You and I will, at our resurrection, be immortal. But God is infinite. He goes the other way too. Remember your middle school geometry? No. Yeah, you do. A line point is just a single point, right? But the line in between one point and another is called a line segment. If it starts at one point and the arrow goes off this way, it's called a ray. It has a beginning but no end. That's an angel, right? Or in the resurrection, that's you, okay? But a line that has an arrow going that way and an arrow going this way also is infinite, no beginning, no end, and that's God. That's the difference, right? Yeah. And God is also immense. I don't think I have to. Not immense in the sense that I could take off a couple of pounds, you know, but that God is simply, he fills everything. In fact, God, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians last week, God fills you because you are God's temple. God dwells in you in your faith. The Holy Spirit and Father and Son each say, I dwell in you. So God dwells in you. Which also, I'm going to talk about this, uh, not to give you the whole sermon, but tomorrow preaching on Doubting Thomas. If Christ dwells in me, should it surprise me that he's aware of all of my sins? If I take his temple off to sin with me, doesn't he know that? Of course he knows that. That's where the terror comes from, the first half of repentance. Because we know that God knows us. The second class of attributes, uh, which really go along with God's omnipotence. What does omnipotent mean? All powerful or almighty, yeah. But his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his omniscience. What's omniscience? All-knowing. His omnisapience. You probably didn't learn that one in catechism class, but can you guess what it means? All-wise. All wise. This is God's plan coming out of his omnisapience. His freedom to act and, and truth goes along with this in this class as well. And then we go to another omni in the third class, which is he is omnisanct. I've talked about this a couple other times. Sanctus is holy, so he is all holy. That is his nature. He is also perfect and majestic and he is glorious and he is blessed. Um, so when we get uh, to be with God in heaven, our relationship will not be as with the bug to the bug zapper, but rather to the um, wanderer who arrives at home and sees a fire on the hearth or sees a candle in the window. That, that, that there our emotion is nothing but joy and homecoming. That's what we will have in heaven because of his majestic glory and blessedness. Anything else there on Psalm 100? Let's move into Psalm 102. What, no author. Notice I'm skipping 101. We'll come back to 101. Okay, this is, we're, going, we're jumping ahead to Psalm 102. There's no author of Psalm 102. It's one of the, <laughs> okay, it's called one of the seven penitential psalms, but why are there seven penitential psalms? I think it's because somebody didn't like it that there were only five penitential psalms. 
So they just stuck two others in there, and this is one of the others. It's not really a penitential psalm. Um, it is the prayer of an afflicted man, but it's not really a, a repentance psalm. It's more of a, I'm really hurt, but I'm so glad that God is my God kind of a thing. So this isn't really a, pen, it's one of the seven penitential psalms, but it isn't really a penitential psalm. Are you okay with me telling you that? Okay. That's one of the first things you learn in Hebrew class in Psalms is that there aren't really seven penitential Psalms. But that's, it, there doesn't, there, they don't have to be. That's just a man-made number anyway. It, it is one of the five, uh, turn your, that's, I'm sorry, that should be ear. Turn your ear Psalms. Um, I should really have somebody proofread all of these slides, shouldn't I? <laughs> David. Proofread all of my slides, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, it's, it, it's, it's a curiosity to me that I, I, I was just digging around about this a while ago, that there are um, uh, quite a few places in the Bible where the phrase, turn your ear, occurs. It's always in a psalm, and it's always in the second line of a psalm. Is that interesting or not? I don't really, I don't, I don't really understand why that would be, but there it is, um, whenever that occurs. Um, also, Psalm 102 was not in the old red Christian worship, and it's not in the main volume of the blue Christian worship, but we could sing it because, did you know this? In the new hymnal, we have an extra volume, a whole book of Psalms, and each one has at least three versions. So we've got, we could sing 102, it's just not in the main hymnal. But we'll haul it out sometime. We've got it. We bought copies of the of the what's it called? The Psalter. Um, so we I don't know if we how many we bought though. A dozen or something like that. We put it on the screen. You can see it or in your bulletin or something like that. The prayer of an afflicted man when he is faint and pours out his lament before the Lord. Sure do learn about his affliction, but we have no idea who he is. So this is also a curiosity in the Psalms. I, I don't know who the author is and don't know who it's about. If it's, a, I assume, the same guy, but an, a, a, an afflicted man. Um, so part one, I'm going to divide the Psalm up into three pieces. It could be divided into five, but I thought three is maybe enough for today. So Because you kind of have an introduction also. But in the first part, verses 1 to 11... Uh, I don't think I wrote that on your sheet. I probably should have, but failed. Um, I have the other parts uh, laid out for you there. But um, So in verses 1 to 11 is the man's affliction. He says things like, I am cursed, I am nothing, and so forth, and my days vanish like smoke. I didn't give you the most famous verse, although that might be it. My day, does that sound familiar to you? All my days vanish like smoke. So let's come to that one right away. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come for you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me. There it is in the second verse. When I call, answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke and my bones burn like glowing embers. What a sentence for a psalm. That my bones burn like glowing embers. Do you think that means that the, the psalm writer feels like he's just a, a smoking, scarred skeleton or that he has pain inside 
That's like he's on fire all the time. What do we call that today? Like when your feet hurt all the time? Neuropathy, right? Um, and uh, in the, in, here the, the psalm writer's uh, bones feel that way constantly. That constant pain. Um, not necessarily because of physical pain, but it could be physical paired with probably spiritual pain of some kind or, or emotional pain or all of the above. But here the mind and the intellect make the prayer, but the feelings produce the cry. So the prayer really comes out of two places, out of the mind and out of the emotions. That's where our prayers come from, from the mind and from the emotions. Um, oh, look at that. I wrote down all the places. It's at the top of the second page where this phrase, turn your ear, comes so it's in Psalm 31, of course, verse 2, Psalm 71, 86, 102, all in verse 2. And it's also in 2 Kings 19, 16, but that's the second verse of a prayer by King Hezekiah. So once again, it's in the second line of a song or a psalm, um, uh, this, uh, this phrase. Verse 3, though, my days vanish like smoke. Uh, my bones burn like glowing embers. His, his pain is pictured um, and is looking at his days vanishing like smoke. It just, they just blow away. Is that his life ebbing away quickly or just with nothing to it or something like that? This is a man, I think, who has experienced great loss um, in his life. I should say, or her life. Is it possible that a psalm like this could have been written by a, 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 a woman of noble character? Sure, sure. Um, what part of scripture do we know was written or given by a woman? There are a couple good examples. Can I give you a hint and say it's Advent? Mary's Magnificat. Say it again. Deborah has that long piece in uh, Judges 5, I think. Uh, Miriam has a little short one in Exodus 15. Moses has a great big song, and then, and then Miriam has a little bitty one too in there. Also, um, in uh, Proverbs 31, Solomon says, um, my mother gave me this. So who wrote Proverbs 31? Who's Solomon's mom? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Yeah, that kind of comes as a, huh, doesn't it? Think, oh. This is, Bathsheba told Solomon, this is what you look for in a good wife. I hesitate to add a punchline. Like he took her advice again and again and again and again and again, but I don't like to do that with scripture, but, um, but, but Solomon... Yeah, he should have looked for one good one. But then again, kings and wives in those days, it's, I, I, there were kings who did very well, who had a, a, a single bride. And there were patriarchs who had just one bride. Best example is Isaac, one wife whom he loved. Didn't take on extra wives and so forth. But you're, gonna, you're about to say something, I cut you off. 
Okay, sorry, I guess I talked just long enough. That's uh, my brother said, that's one of my brother's comebacks. If I forget, I guess I talked long enough then. <coughs> my heart, oh, here we have an example where the NIV is a little bit, uh, I coined a word years ago, scopophilic. You ever heard me say that before? So scop is the Latin word for owl. So a scopophile is somebody who's obsessed with owls. So, and the NIV, every time there's a weird bird, the NIV kind of runs to owls all the time. Um, although one of these two words could be translated pelican. Um, and in Leviticus, it is translated pelican, but here we have owls. But let me just read. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. Because of my loud groaning, I am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. So you understand why he would run to owl here in the translation, because the idea is that it's just a, a lonely bird in a lonely wasteland, right? You know, what birds inhabit the scary places in the dark of the night? Mostly owls. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm reduced to skin and bones. I forget to eat. Um, doesn't this sound like Job? A little bit. Um, even the description of his pain and so forth reminds me of Job. If there was a Job text, this would be a good one to have as the psalm for that day. I should tuck that away in the back of my mind somewhere. Um, when, do, when do we get to preach on Job? Hardly ever. But I like to bring in Job for a certain holiday that isn't in the Christian calendar. New Year's Day. It isn't really a church holiday, but isn't that a good time to think about you know, suffering and God's gifts and what he does for us and so forth. And, um, yeah. Uh, that's maybe enough there, but I'll, let's go to the other bird. I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. What was his name? Gilbert O'Sullivan wouldn't have said bird on a roof. He would have said, I'm just like a cat on a hot tin roof. Um, that's actually an earlier play, but I'm thinking of the rock and roll song. But uh, a bird alone on a roof, my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. Can you imagine having your name become a curse? And then, of course, there's another place in the Bible that says, do not swear by heaven or earth or anything on the earth. You know, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I understand the sentiment. It's a good sentiment, though. Use your own name. For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath. For you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. The psalm could have finished there with just the agony of the man, but that's not what he does. Because in part two, verses 12 to 22, 
he now looks up. You, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. Um, Enthroned forever and enduring renown throughout all generations, that's synonymous parallelism, isn't it? It's kind of the same thing said twice. Very elegantly restated. But you will arise and have compassion on Zion. All throughout the Old Testament, Zion is another way of saying the church. We think of it, especially in the Psalms, we think of the church. For it is time to show favor to her, the appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your servants, her very dust moves them to pity. Uh, could this psalm have been written by David? What was Zion in David's time? What, what part of Jerusalem was, do you have an idea of the geography of the place? In later times, in Solomon's time, Zion, Mount Zion, the peak, became the place of the temple. In David's time, Zion was simply what? The, the old hill of the Lord. What was its old name? Do you remember this from the days of Abraham? Zion had a different name. Moriah. Yeah, what happened on Mount Moriah? Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed. That's what happened on that hill in those days. He was near the Jebusite city. In fact, he was looking down on it probably when it happened. He left the servants with the donkey and he and Isaac yumped up that hill carrying all of the sticks. Actually, Isaac had to carry the sticks he was going to be sacrificed upon. Abraham carried the knife and the fire. And up they went. And then Isaac asked the heartbreaking question. We have the wood and the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Yeah, and God will provide. Um, but Abraham, as in his faith, did everything. It was always early in the morning. He got up. He jumped out of bed and did this. Um, when I think of jumping out of bed, I think of hitting the snooze button. Not necessarily jumping out of bed uh, always, sometimes, um, but not Abraham. So to David, Zion was the hope of the future. He hoped that the temple would be built up there, um, but it was the hill where things had happened in the past. Zion was still a place of worship and devotion for David, um, even though the temple wasn't there yet. So yeah, this could have been written by David. And he doesn't talk about, in verse 14, temple walls, does he? He talks about stones and dust. So just the stuff that's up there on the hill is dear to your servants. The na 15 now, the nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. Fear and reverence are paired here correctly. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. Now we have a question about that verse 16. It... Um, in, uh, in Hebrew, this could be taken as a perfect tense. The Lord will rebuild Zion, uh, or rather, the, the, the Lord, uh, when the Lord has rebuilt Zion. In other words, this could happen down the road, but something may happen and the Lord will have rebuilt it. He will then appear in his glory. Um, 
so you can understand the, 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 words, the words that way, referring to something that is actually far in the distant future. And the prophet Amos also talks about that in one of the only gospel passages in all of Amos, Amos 9-11, was my very first sermon, Christmas 1992. Um, or was it 93? Anyway, uh, one of those. I, I, I preached at Northwestern because the head of the drama department, the Forum Society, was the preacher. So, no, it must have been Christmas 94. Sorry. You don't care. I'll stop reaching for the year. Um, but, uh, um, but I preached on, for Christmas, I preached on Amos 9-11. In that day, I will rebuild Israel's fallen tent. I will replace her fallen stones and build it as it used to be. Can you see how that could be a Christmas passage? Um, and one of the only gospel texts in all of Amos, just a promise to rebuild um, Israel's fallen tent, um, which is what Christ did uh, to rebuild uh, uh, what, ha- what man had destroyed. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Again, synonymous parallelism. Um, and 18 and 19 and 20, let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. Um, so thinking of our, our own descendants, how many descendants will I have? Could it be that I personally will only have the four children that I have and have no grandchildren? It's possible, no descendants. But spiritual descendants, what about those who are affected by my faith? What about those affected by your faith? Whether you have a spouse or children, or grandchildren, or none, or whether you're just a really good neighbor. Um, You have spiritual descendants, people who see your good example um, and follow you. People not yet created may praise the Lord. And this is their little two-verse psalm, those people not yet created. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. This is the Son of God hearing our despair and throwing himself to earth to take up our flesh into his Godhead um, and do everything it took to rescue us from our sins, to hear the groans and release those condemned. Um, Two actions, to hear and to release. But that phrase, and release those condemned, isn't that the entire humiliation and exaltation of Christ in just a phrase, to release, to release. That's what he was doing the whole time. In the manger, at 12 in the temple, right? Uh, At the wedding at Cana, healing the centurion's servant, walking around preaching and teaching, getting baptized by John. Um, That was right before the wedding at Cana. And then uh, 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 healing, or rather raising the the daughter of Jairus up in Capernaum, going out to Nain and raising that boy from death, going up to Syrian Phoenicia 
and healing that uh, Canaanite woman's daughter, um, coming back and uh, uh, being sort of surrounded by, after, after quite a few people rejected him, including the people of Nazareth, he ends up in the wilderness north of the Sea of Galilee, feeds 5,000 um, with just fishes and loaves of bread. Um, that night, when the disciples leave, he follows them, but he follows them across the water, walking on the water. Um, he ends up eventually feeding 4,000 the same way. Uh, starts his final trip by going up to probably Mount Hermon to be transfigured, and then rides what I think of as the little red wagon down the hill. How fast can a little kid go in a little red wagon down a hill? Pretty fast. But that's how I think of, Mount, of the transfiguration. That's Jesus climbing into a little radio flyer, and we're, he's going to zoom, and where is he going to end up when that wagon stops? On the cross. That's that final trip of that final year of his ministry. He's going to have one detour over into Perea and have a little adventure over there. As soon as he comes back across the river, though, from the Perean ministry, he ends up in Jericho. The only stories about Jesus in Jericho happen at that moment. So that's, there's a blind man there and some others in Jericho. Um, that is that uh, Nicodemus? Uh, you know, straining to hear him and so forth. And then into Jerusalem, but up through Bethany first. We've got the Mary and Martha incidents and Jesus raising Lazarus had happened there. Um, and then Holy Week, he comes, the, he transfers from the wagon to a donkey and rides in and then it's Holy Week and there he is on the cross for us. All in this word, release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. David divides them, if it's David. Um, when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord, David, or our, our author, uh, um, imagines all mankind bowing before the Lord. Now, this should be part three. Um, the author says, back to me, I've been hurt even if I perish, because he sh cut short my days like smoke. The Lord endures forever. That's what matters. So the afflicted man now praises God, not for himself, but for his descendants. He says, in the course of my life, he broke my strength and cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations, again, praising God for his eternal nature. But then he goes back with these two verses that we find out in the book of Hebrews are about Christ. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. Um, all of this about Christ, the one who was there in the beginning. How many books of the Bible begin in the beginning? What are the two? John and Genesis. Yeah, in the beginning was the word and in the beginning God created. You laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. What day of creation are we talking about there? Especially? I think mostly one, two, and three. You know, the foundations, the heavens are the work of your hands. 
And on day two, he pulls the water apart, and we have the water above and the water below. We have the sky and so forth. But the foundations of the earth are there in day three as well. Remember in the creation days, that days four, five, and six fill up what's missing from days one, two, and three? So on day one, heavens and earth, right? But what's giving the light? Not yet. Not yet. In day four, then, sun, moon, stars, to give all that. In day two, if I, if I move over in your imaginary glimpse of what I'm talking about, we have sky and sea. What's missing from sky and sea? Birds and fish, that's day five. And then in day three, he draws the land up out of the sea and puts grass and trees and rocks and things. And then what does he make on day six to fill it all up with? All the animals and finally Adam and Eve. Yeah, those are your, those are your six days of, of creation. So all of this, the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. Um, very picturesque that the earth will wear out like a garment. Am I the only one who wears clothes too long? But no? Okay. I thought about that as I put this sweater on today. I thought, normally I wear that old green thing that I've been wearing for about eight years too long. But, uh, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. This is how the psalm ends. With this confidence, once again, that my descendants, whether physical or spiritual, will praise God forever. Um, the, if we just trundle back to that messianic verse, um, there is a question we should ask here. Is it a, are we talking about a type of Christ or a direct prophecy of Christ? Um, if it is typical, how could those words uh, be addressed to a mortal man? You made everything by the work of your hands. If it is direct, then verses 24, 25 before that is kind of obscure. But these two are probably the correct um, interpretations here. It, it, if 2425 are the end of the afflicted man's plea and then the rest of the psalm is the Lord's response, then although that's kind of abrupt, but it would, it would fit, and it does fit. And then um, anything addressed to God can also be addressed to Christ, correct? So, But the writer of the Hebrews does apply this directly to Christ in Hebrews um, chapter 13. Anything else on Psalm 102? Let's go to um, Psalm 101. This one is by David. Oh, Brad? Verse 20. Back in Psalm 102. There it is. Isaiah, yeah, giving prisoners release. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, though, something, it was also spoken by Job. Um, I was looking at this earlier, and it, it, it's almost closer to the language of Job. I forget the chapter, but there's a chapter where Job is talking about the guys who have to go down in the mines, 
And in Job's time, that often meant tying in a rope around a guy as he gets lowered into a hole. Can you imagine mining that way? Chip, chip, swing. Chip, chip, swing in the dark. You know, with maybe a candle tied to your forehead or whatever. And oh, yikes. Um, and those poor guys. And he talks about them down there in the dark like that. But rescue for them as well. So similar language though. Very good. Excellent. Brad, you're, you, you strike me as the kind of guy who in a study Bible, you could, you could fill in that narrow middle column with all those little references. Like, you know, here, here, and here. And Don't... Uh, don't disparage the little device you have if you use it well. There aren't, there aren't many excellent uses of a phone. That's one of them. So that and calling for help. And finding my way through a Mankato in a storm. We were, Jonathan and I were out in that the other night when it was so horrible. It was the Bethany concert. And... Uh, my son bought himself a ticket and then got me to take him, and I didn't have a ticket, so I had to wait, you know, for the Bethany concert. And uh, so I went and bought fish for my tank. We can take a field trip after class if you'd like to see my fish, by the way. And, uh, um, but, uh, but they survived. But it took us an hour and 10 minutes to get home from Mankato. There was a line of four cars. I think an angel was in the one ahead of me. We were second, but we were, it was, it had been, it had been more than 45 minutes and we weren't even to Cortland yet. We were to, what is it, where the, where the Anglican church is? Uh, no, on, on 68, but that, the other, the other little village out there. Cambria, Cambria, yeah. And we're like, we're not even to Cortland yet. Yeah. And uh, no critters though, no animals were charging out, just snow in our faces. All right, Psalm 101. In this whole uh, group of Psalms, uh, 90 to 106, that I, I think of Moses, especially in the creation story, um, this one is actually by David. It's a psalm. And it has many, many words for, us, for sin and sinners. Um, I've printed those for you on your sheet. There will also be a slide for this. And my kind of idea about this psalm is that it's the the king cleans up his house. That's kind of sort of what this psalm is, is all about. So David starts. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praise. Synonymous. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. Notice the poetry here where David puts parallel lines in, can, I, can I divide verse 2 into A, B, and C if I, if I format it like this? Do you understand? And A and C are parallel, but B, the one in between, just kind of, it adds on to both of them. Okay? So I invented a new word here. So it's a Janus staircase parallelism. Nobody else would talk about this. But it, it, Janus is the Roman god who looked both directions at once. We get our, our word January from him. It looks both ways. And so the middle line there, line B, would, would, would go with either A or C. So it looks both directions. It's a little add-on in the middle, but it works very well. So David's getting uh, quite artistic with his, with his poetry here. Um, verses 3 and 4. I will 
set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate. They will not cling to me. So you have a reversal from the first line of three to the second. He says the same thing but flips it backwards. That's also a kind of parallelism. But the deeds of faithless men. So vile, faithless, different words for kinds of sin. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. So lots of words here for sin and and wickedness. David is cleaning up his house. I won't have anything to do with this stuff, David says. Five and six. There, I think we only have eight verses here, so there's not much left, but we'll look. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, him will I put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him will I not endure. So there you've got an A, B that are uh, the, 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 the B line continues the thought of the A line. And then in CD of verse 5, um, the D line continues the thought of the C line. I'm getting lost in my numbering here. Um, in uh, Martin Luther's time, the Bible had been divided into chapters for hundreds of years, for centuries. But in Luther's time, a brand new innovation was coming on the world. Verse numbers. So if you read Luther, sometimes the footnotes will tell you, well, this is really verse whatever, because the verse numbers were not yet standardized. You know, what, what does it take to standardize something like that? Well, everybody has to buy a copy of what you did, right? So it's the printing press. Gutenberg is the one who was going to standardize the verse numbers. Today we have another new innovation happening, but it's not yet standardized. So I can sit here in class and say 5A, 5B, 5C, and 5D, but those, they're called subverses. But that might not be what they're called 20 years from now when everybody buys Brad Peterson's definitive guide to the Bible's numbering system. Um, sorry to pick on you, Brad, but you're sitting there. Um, and tonight I'll pick on Jameis Martins. Um, and uh, the same way. And uh, so I don't know if that'll, but that's, we're beginning to divide verses down that way. So you can talk about phrases and verses and everybody knows what line you're on. That's, that's what's happening. But it's not standardized yet. Six, my eyes will be on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. So do you have a picture here of David? And don't we have a picture of what Christ does? David's greater son, um, looking for the faithful, calling them in to dwell with him, and they will, the word minister really means serve. So they'll dwell with me and they will serve me. This is really a picture prefiguring Christ. And then, then seven and eight. No one who practices deceit, again, sin words, will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. So this, here's the king cleaning up his house. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Um, that's, how, that's how 101 ends here. Um, but where every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. That begins, should in my life, it should begin in the bathroom mirror. Right? As I remember my own baptism. Can we take a look at this psalm in its structure? 
So I've, I've lined up verses 1, 2, 3, 4 on the left and 5, 6, 7, 8 on the right with some key words. It's a curiosity when you take a look at it in the chiastic pattern. So I will sing is paralleled with I will silence the wicked. And then to live blamelessly is also to have no deceiver in my house. To have my eyes on no vile thing is to have my eyes on the faithful. Do you see how his language speaks across the line to itself? And then finally in the middle, verses 4 and 5, I'll have nothing to do with evil. I will silence those who slander. This is a true chiastic pattern in this psalm. Very remarkable. Very, very elegantly done by David. And then all these words for sin that he uses. Vile, faithless, perverse, evil, slander, haughty, proud, deceit, speaks falsely, is wicked, an evildoer. You know, it's only eight verses long and half the psalm doesn't have any verse words for evil. So that's a lot of, of wickedness crammed in here. There are other ways of looking at the psalm. We're kind of running out of time, but you can do it with these. Um, on the sheet, I have the note, the progression of part one and part two. He goes from his personal righteousness to putting to silence those who are wicked. You know, it starts with me and then it works outward. And the verses six, seven, and eight, the same time, the same way. He has eyes on the faithful. The deceiver won't dwell here. And then I will finally cut off those. So... Um, Fellowship begins in the confession of the believer. Clean up my house before I worry about somebody else's house. Jesus put that a different way. The moat in the eye. Look to the speck in your own eye before you go swinging the two by four at your brother. Um, yeah. No, it goes the other way, doesn't it? Take the, take the plank out of your own eye before you pick the speck out of your brother's eye. Yeah. Can we close with this? No. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for letting me do this. Class, you've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.